You're listening to Dental Talk from VivaLearning.com. So we're, we're getting into a new age of materials in endodontics, and we're really happy to have you on the show to talk about it. You know, many of us, even general dentists, possibly have been using products like MTA, the first generation uh, mineral trioxide aggregate. And uh, that's also considered, I guess we could say, a first generation bioceramic. But there's, you know, limitations with that. And we'll talk about that. But let's talk about what are bioceramics? So let's begin with that. And why are they used in endodontics in the first place? Sure, Phil. As you mentioned, we've had a um, an introduction since the introduction of MTA. This new class of uh, compounds have been added to endodontics that kind of predated by being uh, used uh, quite uh, you know frequently in in medicine and especially in orthopedic uh, uh, orthopedic surgery and so on back in the 1960s. And these bioceramics or even you know bio active glasses or bioglasses are basically a subset of ceramic biomaterials uh, that are very biocompatible. So that's why they're called bioceramic because of their biocompatibility primarily. And ceramics, of course, are a bunch of non-organic uh, uh, materials that are bonded together. They usually have either a crystalline form that can range anywhere from very crystalline, uh, crystalline all the way to uh, very amorphous, such as glasses, obviously earthenware, porcelains and brick and all the stuff that we're used to. But uh, bioceramics also have a range of biocompatibility. As we know, in orthopedic medicine, the lining of some of these prosthetic devices have been bioceramics because of the biocompatibility. But in those situations, you don't want to have anything that is resorbable. So they've been non-resorbable. But they also range in terms of some of the bio glasses that are resorbable that are used for bone grafting uh, for incidences where you want to place a kind of a bioactive and uh, possibly osteoconductive material to repair a, a, a bony defect and then have it be replaced and remodeled by actual bone. So these class of compounds have been around for a long time in medicine. It was really in 1993, around that time, where Dr. Turabinajad from University of uh, Loma Linda University uh, first kind of described and introduced the, this class of materials to endodontics. Now, MTA, mineral trioxide aggregate, uh, was a wonderful product. It was kind of inspired by Port Portland cement, uh, which is kind of interesting how Portland cement being so biocompatible to us, which is also used for construction, obviously. So MTA was really a wonderful product as it was introduced and a number of, one of the most highly researched materials in endodontics in early times showed not only great biocompatibility, but also because of its ability to be hydrophilic, it was able to adapt to uh, dentinal surfaces and uh, both surgically and non-surgically to uh, tooth surfaces very nicely and be able to provide a bond with the hydroxyapatite that was in the dentin. So creating a nice seal, being hydrophilic, having a number of biocompatibility kind of uh, advantages, as well as the fact that the pH was very high on this material, was a pH of about 12.6, 12.8. It was also highly antimicrobial. So MTA very quickly became a gold standard for use in terms of cements, specifically for 
surgical use because the material had particle sizes that were around 20 microns, so they were fairly large uh, particle size bioceramic material, and it was mixed with water, hand mixed with water, and it resulted into kind of a mud that uh, was the, the, the cement, and it was applied to a site, had to stay hydrated, and then a set was uh, uh, done after a few hours. So this was really a wonderful product, and originally, it, it this, uh, and all the research showed that every aspect of it was validated in terms of its uh, biocompatibility, in terms of its uh, bond, in terms of its uh, hydrophilicity, and uh, you know even the biocompatibility was so great that the studies were showing that cementum, cemental cells were actually growing right over the material. Hmm. So this was something that was unprecedented in in our field. So for years. MTA had this great advantage. The only two downsides of MTA were primarily its uh, uh, clinical handling properties because once you mix the MTA powder with water, you had some mud on your hand and applying the mud to a surgical site or even a non-surgical site ended up being a little bit more difficult for some people. So we ended up having to develop a lot of different contraptions and, 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 and tips and tricks of uh, clinical uh, use for being able to apply the material to the surgical site, specifically for retrofilling, for example, to condense it down and uh, dry it out uh, before it would wash out. And then the other downside of it, besides its clinical handling properties, were the um, uh, the presence of bismuth oxide that in the anterior area could cause discoloration of the tooth. So these two things, especially because MTA also had an advantage for being used for resorption uh, resorptive defect repairs and up coronally in the tooth for various reasons, and it could actually percolate through the dentin and cause a discoloration, uh, especially for kind of cases of uh, apexification or apexic, um, revascularization and so on. It caused a lot of uh, discoloration. So these were the two negative things. And then later on, you know, in 2007, if you will, uh, a new product was developed that was kind of inspired by MTA from its basic chemistry being a calcium uh, silicate and a phosphate-based material. But this was kind of created de novo for use for endodontics as opposed to MTA, which was primarily driven by its, you know, Portland cement properties, and then it was kind of brought into endodontics. This was created on purposely for its endodontic use, and it kind of had address those two issues of MTA, one being the discoloration problem by removing the bismuth oxide from the MTA, uh, from this uh, this formula, so that there is no staining with this uh, other bioceramic, these newer generation of bioceramics that uh, don't have the bismuth oxide. And then also, it also had a pre-mixed formula. This was the endosequence uh, cement, which was also iRoot, uh, at the time, and then the endosequence sealer, these two, which are the same basic formula, had the uh, ability to um, um, not cause staining and also have a pre-mixed formula that they didn't require mixing with water. The water was absorbed from the environment, from the from the milieu and the surrounding tissues, obviously being used in vivo, where you have dentin and the surrounding areas being uh, um, you know, nicely uh, 
supplied with water if it's externally you were 75 percent water and if dentin itself is around 20 percent or so uh, um, water by uh, by weight or rather by volume and therefore this water was abundant so the material was deposited into the site and microscopically it picked up the water from its surrounding and it began a two-step process for the setting, which was a hydration process, followed by a precipitation process. In the hydration step, the bioceramic material would pick up the water from the surrounding, and the calcium silicate mixed with water would, re would release some calcium hydroxide. And the calcium hydroxide that was released is the reason why these class of bioceramics have a high and alkaline pH, and high pH is fairly alkaline, for a few days, even following application. The pH after about seven days goes back to neutral, but it does stay high. At the time of application at a pH of about 12.6 or seven, it is a, um, a highly alkaline and antimicrobial type of a cement until it becomes neutralized. The, the full setting of the material in vivo is around four hours, maybe a little bit longer, but around that, that area. So it does give you also some clinical handling properties that are advantageous by not having something that sets so quickly. Yeah, and additionally, the particle size has changed quite a bit from MTA, has, have they not, versus a macro? And now, now it allows yeah. us to use it more of a sealer. Can you go talk about that a bit? No, absolutely, yes. In, in fact, the, the formula, the original formula for this new premixed uh, type of bioceramics were able to be now manipulated by the use of particle size to achieve several different consistencies out of the same basic formula. So you could get a material that had sub-micron particle size and make that into a sealer, and, you know, even now the newer uh, versions of that, which is even a higher flow, it's even a smaller particle size. But from minus one micron up to a micron size, this formula could be used for a sealer where you require to have more flow and less viscosity so that, you know, you can cement materials such as a gutta percha into place. And then from a range of two to uh, from one to two to four, something like that area, you have something that is a little bit more viscous that you could re apply for repair for some kinds of uh, you know perforation repairs internally or externally, and then for even higher particle sizes, this material has been formulated to also in conjunction with some additional fillers, so that you now have a formulation of biceramic that is not just injectable or fluid, but you can mal it's malleable to the extent that it acts almost like cavit. So you can actually place it directly into a site and be able to uh, um, to control the material uh, much more uh, efficiently than you could with the previous generation of materials. Could you give us some examples of the uses of bioceramics in endonics, both for the specialist and also for the GP? Of course. I mean, the, the, the bioceramics now as a field have grown. And there's a number of materials out there. Uh, you know, the original one, as I mentioned, was MTA. Some of the newer formulations that are pure bioceramics are uh, the endosequence line of uh, sealers as well as the, uh, uh, the BioRoot RCS materials and so on. These are really the pure bioceramics. There are, unfortunately, because bioceramics are a big buzzword, 
There's a number of other products that have kind of added a tiny bit of bioceramic to them, and they're calling themselves a bioceramic. So it's very important for the clinicians uh, to, to be aware, to read the labels and understand whether the material that they have is a pure bioceramic and does not contain any resin or any other material added to it, because that's where you get the pure biology and the, uh, the, the, the material properties of a bioceramic is when you have a pure bioceramic. But talking about the applications of the bioceramics, clearly you have surgical applications and non-surgical applications. The surgical applications for all biceramics are apicoectomy. Clearly, when you do an apicoectomy and you want to retrofill your, uh, the root end, these biceramics are really ideal for that because of the hydrophilic properties and the bonding, chemical bonding, and so on. If you have resorption, that is external root resorption, uh, some of the cervical root resorption uh, problems that we see nowadays associated with ortho and other uh, types of uh, trauma, those can be repaired with this. Perforation repair due to iatrogenic perforations or also due to these internal or external resorption problems can be repaired nicely with bioceramics. That's on the surgical side. On the non-surgical side, the, uh, they could be, obviously, as we mentioned, could be used for sealer, for doing uh, root canal therapy, if you will, in conjunction with a gutta percha. They could be used for pulp capping, uh, for indirect or direct pulp capping during restorative procedures. They could be used for apexogenesis because of their biocompatibility and their high pH. They can maintain vitality of the pulp uh, and allow apexogenesis and root uh, formation to complete. If you already have a root uh, that is uh, blunderbuss open and you want to close the apex, previously used to do multiple visit apexifications. Now with the bioceramics, you're able to do one-step apexification and then also for internal perforation repair during access preparations and all kinds of problems like that, you could use them. So as you can see, bioceramics really have universal applications in clinical endodontics for this specific, um, uh, for, for, for many, many different uses. Yeah, no, that's a great summary. So we're going to be doing another podcast with you, Ali, very shortly uh, called Bioceramics Use in Non-Surgical Root Canal Therapy. And hopefully um, in that podcast, you will cover in more detail these procedures related to uh, the products you're talking about, like EndoSequence. And by the way, EndoSequence is, is a product um, by Brassler, is it not? Yes, Brassler USA makes the EndoSequence line. Yeah, So um, and they are the sponsor of this podcast, so I wanted to make that clear to our listeners that um, Brassler is sponsoring this educational program. And again, we'll look forward to your next podcast, like I mentioned, on non-surgical root canal therapy. And then you have several to follow, one on surgical uh, applications, and then, um, again, a review of basic restorative materials and endodontics. So we look forward to having you on the next one. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you.